Welcome to Magic Hour. I'm not sure which episode this is, but what I do know is you've got a fantastic conversation coming your way. Alethea Jones graduated from the uh, VCA, Film and Television School, in 2007. She won the Tropfest Short Film Festival a year or two later, and that got her a bunch of interviews with Hollywood producers and agents, and she has gone on to have an amazing career as a director over there. She's made things like American Woman, Queen America, Mrs. Davis, and recently, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. So she's got a really varied, interesting body of work, and what's extra special about today is one of my favorite people in the world, Professor Nicolette Freeman, who's an amazing academic here at the school, but also an incredible cinematographer. If you haven't seen it, Nicolette shot the movie Road to Nil, one of my most loved Australian films. So Nicola really knows her stuff, and she gets really fantastic answers and thoughts from Alethea who is really great to listen to. What I love about this chat with Alethea is she's really open and she's not afraid to be really honest about the career she's had, the highs and the lows, and what she's learned. So that's more than enough out of me. Let's hear from these two amazing women as they discuss life and filmmaking. Um, I really was hoping to talk about... um what I've learned about the American system and um, working within that in television, mostly television, but I've learned a little bit about film as well. And we didn't really get to focus on that at VCA. We were so focused on how to make it, how to make stuff like, and I really needed all that. <laughs> I was, but I would have loved, oh yeah, that's what I love to share. What I've. Okay, good. Cause those were some questions I've got. Yeah. So um, let me use that as a segue then. So. One thing is what it's like to be working in that system, but also when I was thinking in the shower this morning, Love. like while Alethea was here, you know, that whole streaming world wasn't even a world that existed um, to imagine. So um, I'm going to not be too excited because I don't know what levels you set for that. Um, so, yeah, tell us, well, firstly tell us, we know from what we can read of interviews of you that you kind of got to the States through the shorts pathway, you know, Alethea uh, won Tropfest and then you got industry meetings in LA mm -hmm. from that, I think. Um, can you imagine having got where you are in another pathway other than those? No, I can't. Um, and even that, like, I, I remember that I had just for a holiday visited New York um, because I'd barely been overseas. So I went to New York with my partner at the time and I remember saying to him, we were flying out of LA to come back to Australia and saying, one day I, I wonder I might have to work in LA or live in LA. Maybe we should stay there for a few nights, just a few nights on the way back. Like maybe we should, like it hadn't even occurred to me. And you know, two years later I was, LA was a very big part of my life. And when, when we won Tropfest, I, I directed the film that won. And um, uh, I remember saying to John Paulson, the head of the festival, I don't want to use my prize to LA yet. I'm not ready. Like I want to have a feature film script. I want to mm -hmm. have a, I want to have a, a pitch I wanted to take stuff over and he was like nah you're going like and sort of pushed me out of the nest and he was right because I did have a reluctance I had imagined that 
that I would be well into my 40s before I ever went to LA. Um, so the not good enough yet syndrome. Correct. And I do wonder, I don't know if that's it. That could be a mixture of Australian sort of tall poppy stuff and maybe a very gendered kind of thing because I do remember um, a lot of the girls in my class were more reluctant and reticent and the guys would just be like, yeah, I'm going to be great. And like, uh, but we all did equally the same. We, we all did well together, but we were always a little more standoffish. Like, yeah, I wanted to be perfect before I went. So what did happen in the meetings? Because we know, you know, like at uh, talent camps at, attached to festivals and stuff, that thing of having the project ready to pitch is yeah. a big part of it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's often a criteria to even get into the camps. It certainly is here with right. um, Accelerator. So what did you talk about at the meetings if Good you didn't question. have the project ready? I didn't have the project. I, I never identified as a writer. Like I always just really loved that I was a director and that became useful to me because I didn't have to pitch projects. Mm. I I was looking for what's called ODAs, an open director's assignment. So my agent was really good at grabbing scripts and he was shoving me into the room on scripts and but projects. But hang on, yeah. you already had an A. I got him immediately on the back of Tropfest. As part, the win. Of, as part of the prize. One of my first meetings was That's an agent. Good. And I had three short films. I had the Tropfest film. Mm. I had a film that went to Myth Accelerator the year before called When the Wind Changes and I had this gorgeous third film called Dave's Dead. I didn't write any of them. Like, And they were all made for very little money, like $5,000, $4,000. And I think When the Wind Changes was about $20,000. Um, so I had three. And I, it was good to have three, three short films that were noisy and interesting. Um, they and, loved it. And different. Yeah, the Americans loved it. I remember being in Australia and people being like, what do we do with her? That was what it felt like. Um <laughs> And a lot of the short films that were getting traction at that time were these beautiful dramas. Like, mm. I called them poverty dramas. <laughs> they were, like, you know, like they were these beautiful issues. What, what, what international people loved seeing in Australia, which were beautiful dramas, issues, struggles, right? And I was just making these weird little colourful comedies that people didn't really know what to do with me here, but America was like, get in, kill it, let's go. Like, yeah. And, you know... <sighs> probably not bizarre but when I watch Mrs Davis your episodes of Mrs Davis and I've watched other episodes of Mrs Davis as well but I can see when when the wind blows and the wind changes changes in in it me too yeah yeah I was actually hanging out with the writer of when the wind changes his name's Rick Davies and he start he acted in it as well and um and I said to him last night we had dinner last night and I said you should have been in Mrs Davis (laughs) you've been really good in it yeah but that's so interesting. Like I just found that so oh, interesting yeah. because it's a long time since I've seen it. Yeah. But I could completely remember that directing and performance style. And yeah, I love it. That's that film. There yeah. In the mid- and so that takes me to the next question. Right. So Mrs. Davis, for example, it's got two writers. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know about you guys, but so I'm curious to know, firstly, how that thing of the writers works mm-hmm. in that drama context mm-hmm. there in the States. How much are they on set all the time? How much power do they have? compared to you as director and you were one of three directors yeah so that so tell me about the writers Mm. um i notice you also get a producing credit yeah so tell me what that means Mm. and also how you work uh as co-directors to have a consistency of style in a show 
Yeah. That'll probably take us a couple of hours. It is interesting. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Mrs. Davis, for those of you, I think you can watch it on Binge over here. It was co-chaired. It has a seven-day free trial. Oh, there you go. Get into it. Um, Mrs. Davis is one of my favourite works. It was created by Damon Lindelof, uh, co-created by Damon Lindelof, who did Watchmen and Lost and Leftovers, and Tara Hernandez who was relatively newer to the game and he was championing her. She was the showrunner. And so it was really interesting to have this icon like Damon. Like I loved Watchmen. It's one of my favorite TV experiences of the last few years. Um, But he really stepped back and understood what his voice was. And so he championed Tara and let let her be front and center. But there are a lot of battles in TV and film that need to be fought to get what you, to get more money to get more time like you've got to sort of learn when to um, when to not push but when to push and see if they will and they did they did give us a lot more money once Damon was like we can't do it for that much so mm. there was that um, it, I was surprised that Damon actually is really hands off on set he um, picks his directors very carefully and stays away and that's not always the case like you have to the showrunners for every show are, are really different and sometimes they will be on set and the actors will look straight past you to the showrunner and I think I've had a, a lot of success because I'm very collaborative like I love friendships like I love um, my buddies and I always worried when I was younger that I didn't feel like an archetypal director that I'm, I've never identified as an auteur for example I love my writers and so I will always uphold them but I, I do think that I've had success because I let people in I'm like I'll have a showrunner whisper to me a really amazing note and sometimes it is more appropriate for me to deliver the note myself but it's their note like I never would have thought of it in a million years so I'll be like come and give the note with me whereas mm. sometimes their experience with other directors is like I've got it thank you. <laughs> and the director sort of goes and, and they never get hired again. And I'm like, come on, let's go together. Like, and then we're doing magic tricks and having fun. And that, so they really, I get a lot of work that way mm-hmm. because I am inclusive. And I think, I think it can get lonely filmmaking. You know, when you think about, I don't know for you guys, but my favorite film experiences were my memories of being on set are with other people and having ideas together and figuring stuff out. So it's never a solitary experience. So, for example, on a co-directed show like that, yeah. though, would you say each of you three directors had different types of relationships with the showrunner? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, so I wasn't the setup director. I was an executive producer on Mrs. Davis, but I wasn't the pilot director. Um there was a pilot director who was there before me. I was finishing another show called Rise of the Pink Ladies, so I wasn't able to join them until later. And I think maybe they <coughs> enticed me with the executive producer credit because I, I couldn't, I said no a few times um, to them because I wasn't available. And then they pushed it back a little bit um, for a bunch of reasons, and I was able to join. So that director was well on his way, and he established the look, and, and he was a British guy. And he um, is just a delight, like a delightful person. And he, uh, but he had a different way of dealing with the showrunners. And I came in being a little more fluent in the American way. And I think, I definitely know that Tara was very, Tara is the younger showrunner. She was very happy that I came in and was like, sit here with me, like sit by the monitors. And she was like, oh, no, no. And I was like, come on. And um, Tara and I just became two peas in a pod. So this is her first show running credit. Correct. So 
Yeah, she probably really had a lot invested in who were going to be her buddies on that yeah. set. Yeah, great. Yeah, but no, so so um, Owen was amazing. He's the setup director in that respect, and he helped pick me too. He interviewed me for it, and they watched all my stuff. They all really loved when the wind changes, like mm-hmm. I have other TV. Um, and they all vetted me, but Owen was part of picking me, but he was busy. He needed to hire someone that could actually just take the th- – I had three episodes and just own them and do a lot of heavy lifting. That's why they had two producing directors. The third director was a, a guy called Fred Toy who had one episode that was like almost like a standalone episode. It was the whale one the, on mm-hmm. the ship. That's the one between your – so you do three, five, four, and six, and he does five. He did seven, oh, actually. Isn't that the last one? No, there's eight. Oh. Seven was just one. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was an interest. I think they also got me because we shot part of Mrs. Davis in Los Angeles, mm. and then I went off to Spain while I were finishing in Los Angeles, and I set up all the Spain work and shot a lot of my episodes in Spain. The Rome. Yeah, I shot Spain for Scotland, medieval France, and Italy. Mm. Loved it. It was so fun. <laughs> and then Fred in the and then Owen came over and Fred stayed and shot episode seven. And he's an amazing director. But yeah, we kind of all kept to ourselves. Like so I guess they had to be very careful about picking directors who had a similar style and understood the tone. So, tone is so important over there and everywhere. So how do you practically sit together and talk about how you're gonna maintain that? Um, well, you know, the continuity comes from the actors, Mm. but I, yeah, we do direct them a little bit differently. Um, it comes from the production design, the costumes, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I noticed, for example, even shots and I didn't, I didn't do the homework to see if it was the same cinematographer, but you know, I I noticed that that's my thing. There's quite a lot of, uh, couple shots, you know, lying on floors, different couples, and they have this unusual shot, which is the sideways lens. It's not very common. And I saw it, uh, in different episodes. So I, with different couples, Mm -hmm. uh, like in the box and the early ones with Jesus. So I, um, wondered Mm. first he did, was it the same cinematographer? No. Okay, so that made me think, okay, so they've had, has someone sat down and said, okay, we're going to go, because there's lots of unusual shots. Yeah. But is this as an example, we're going to keep that as a similar language throughout, where that, you don't remember whether there were those kind of conversations? There were conversations. There was, um, you know, I borrowed a bunch of, um, you know, like in a production office, the setup director, and I did it on Rise of the Pink Ladies because I was the setup director, mm-hmm. but you've got your lookbook or your your pitch deck and the imagery and then you just start flooding the walls with that so you're immersing the whole production office with imagery that's inspirational and that everybody's mm. agreed on so i got a copy of owen's book and just sort of i watched the dailies that he'd already shot the rushes and um i was like yeah yeah, yeah. okay i've got it um and they but they were really encouraging of going off i remember owen's cinematographer joe anderson called up tara and was like the showrunner and was like Alethea's moving the camera a lot. It was, I had to do, um, I do move the camera a lot. I love it. Why wouldn't you? Um, But they were like, we're not moving the camera in our episodes. And Tara was like, I love it. Like, you should move the camera more. Like, um, but that was a weird thing where I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, no one told me not to move the camera. Like, and I was doing a heist sequence. So I was doing like this kind of, like very JJ Abrams kind of thing. And it was so fun, but. Yeah, that, that was a weird moment where it was like, oh, am I not meant to? Like, But they really, like Damon Lindelof, it's just interesting because he's so um, prolific. 
I was really delighted by how he was like, go for it. What do you want to do? Get weird. Um, I thought it would be the opposite. As but Who's seen it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I've just put it on my list of things to see. I, I nearly yeah, I sent out everybody a thing like, you know, okay, you can get the free seven days on binge, at least watch one episode. And then I thought, okay, no, I'm going to bring this in and we can watch a scene if we have to. But one of the things about it that I think lends itself to that go wherever you want to is, you know, I mean, we know that streaming drama, you know, can be extended. There's lots of episodes that can be different episode lengths and all that. But this show in particular... It's time traveling, it's space traveling, um, it's different narrative modes traveling, and there's so much, like so much stuff to shoot per episode. That's yeah, another thing. Yeah, yeah. But it seems to lend itself because of its coming in and out that there is a little bit more license to go right. stylistically different. It's almost each episode, like, so I directed three episodes, even those three were different. Yeah. Like, there was the Excalibur battle, there's a Scotland episode. A Vatican episode and a weird heist episode. Like, so it was just a joy. It's the highlight of my whole career doing that show. We shot on these beautiful lenses, chameleons, which I was just like, oh, you can't get a shot wrong. Like, mm. every, every, like, I don't know what it is about that glass that made every shot so spectacular. Anamorphic is a joy. I don't know. Like, just choreo. And I had spent the whole year doing anamorphic composition, shot composition in 239. So filling a frame really differently was, was, so fun um mm-hmm. because you can't just do a a two shot gets really weird like um so yeah, yeah what you do with background artists yeah it's been really fun mm. okay let's um is jump sideways i'm gonna have to keep on the time because i've got so many questions um and i'm sure they've got a lot too rise of the pink ladies mm-hmm. so you've just mentioned that's anybody seen that that's harder to see. <laughs> he worked on it. It's harder to see, and do you know why it's harder to see? Because they took it off streaming. Yeah, yeah they took it off really? streaming. So not only did like had incredible fan base, um, then the point, I mean, this is me speculating, mm-hmm. point comes, are we going to do a second um, season? And they go, no, we're not. But guess what? We're also going to take season one down off the um, platform. So what's the story behind that? A lot of politics involved with streaming at the moment it's it there's definitely what what the strikes you know the writers and the actors striking there's a the the streaming world is a really unstable model like and as you know you're like you all didn't watch mrs davis i assume maybe some most of you don't even have binge or you do i don't know there's just a lot out there right like it sort of exploded it was a glut that was a glut Mm. of of services everybody's scrambling for something and now they realize they knew that it was unsustainable but they were just pushing for it in fact they did give us a second season the it was written the second season was written which Mm. actually so what what that what that move is now and they've been doing it I think, was it Batgirl or Batwoman was the first mm. casualty where that's a film that was finished mm. and in the can. And some smart bean counter um, was like, wait, if we never release this, we'll actually make more money because mm. we'll do it as a tax write-off. Mm. Um, yeah. So Rise of the Pink Ladies was the head of Paramount Plus. It was one of her favourite shows. She cried when she saw the pilot and rang me and she was like, this is amazing. Like, she was so proud of it. She championed it. And she didn't make the decision. It wasn't a creative call. It was a numbers call. It was a big, expensive show, um, over a $100 million budget. 
and they pulled it off and did it as a tax write-down. And the fans are very angry. And very the upset. social media so yeah. is phenomenal. Um, because it had really beautiful representation. So a lot of people that felt marginalised saw themselves in this show. And, like, I was always passionate about a Technicolor musical from the 50s. Like, but they're all just straight and white and super sexist right like so isn't it fun to to do a technicolor musical and still keep it in the 50s but take the camera from this corner where we're used to seeing that and just go around the corner because those students were there like they're just not in the story like which sucks so we we were showing these other students these different storylines that were always pushed to the way and and so the audiences were like oh, it's me like i'm this queer kid that doesn't know what gender side i fall on and just got they were devastated but then paramount plus like yeah the then they the pulling out of but the then show. they were like they took it off the platform and then they were like but you can download it for 20 dollars and then now they're releasing a dvd this month and all the fans will they have downloaded it they will buy the dvd so it's another way for these streamers yeah i did to notice make money. We, you can buy here we can yeah. buy per episode i think it's three bucks per episode from memory um, but yeah, that's the only way to watch it's it. It's so hostile because it's just not what audiences signed up for. This this transitional period where I'm sure it's going to happen more and more, pulling things from the platform because they've done their job, they got their subscriptions, like, and then, uh, but then releasing it and making more money, like, mm. that's that's an interesting. I don't know if uh, that'll yeah, keep yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah see, it like shouldn't throw our DVD players out. Correct. Extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, like, here's my pitch for DVDs as a teacher. Mm. You can still not, like, you know, anybody studying films mm. in oh, detail, gosh, like, yeah. as opposed to on a streaming and DVD, it's like yeah. chalk and cheese. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel I have sort of gone past something. Oh, so, yeah, I've like millions of them here. Um, do you get, you get terrified before day one? No. Why not? It's just so fun now. I used to get really sick and terrified before all of my short films at VCA. Like, and and uh, <laughs> even the three short films I made um, after VCA, like those three shorts that were the ones that I used as my calling cards, I would get scared and terrified. Um, no, it's just fun. It's like, for me, it's like um, flying a spaceship, like... I love it. I was like, what's this new spaceship going to be? Because they're all different. And it's like, if you can, and I've seen, I've had the, the privilege of overseeing other directors now. So I've been a producing director on a few shows, which means I'm there across the whole run and I see the directors come and go and I help them and I, I prep with them and I just make sure that the tone remains um, because a director can come in and just go pew, pew, like, and just get really weird. And it's like, no, like, that's a really weird episode and it's not the show. Like, that can yeah, happen. Yeah. And um, so I've, I've, I've seen directors come in and, and they're, not, they're really reticent, like when they're reticent to be like, I don't know, or they defer to the DP a lot and the DPs are often cowboys and they're like, oh, okay, this is how we'll do it. And so you can actually, in a bad way, you can cruise through the TV industry and get carried by a whole machine that's already on its way, yeah. right? The train is moving. The cast kind of know what to do. Everybody knows what to do. So a director can phone it in. And so 
the the more fun is to come in and go, let's go. Like, mm. I don't know what the sound levels are, but like, and then you're just being really robust. And I've been rewarded for that. I've been rewarded for saying, come with me, everybody. Like, and if you come in in the middle of an episode, when you're an inexperienced director, they usually put you in the middle because story wise, there's not much coming to a head. Like, so you give someone an episode four mm-hmm. um, where you've sort of gotten over the hump of the pilot and there's going to be a, a mid-season climax and the end climax. So you're going to give them an episode four or an episode six or seven. Like, um, but I love being, I loved being in those situations and being like a cheerleader, like, because by then everybody kind of hates each other uh, or there's things happening politically on these film crews and so if you come in with this beautiful energy and really seeing each crew member and listening to them and activating the cast and valuing the showrunner's words, it's kind of a joy. Like, What about the sort of tackier, businessy stuff before that? What's the, how would you mean? <laughs> you know, like the getting the money and like the not the... Getting the money? The, like, do you mean just getting it off the ground? Yeah. Or? I'm not really, I haven't really been part of that. I've, I've been involved with a few shows where we've sold it and developed it. Mm-hmm. But I haven't, like Rise of the Pink Ladies was already greenlit when I jumped on as a director. Um, but yeah, I, what have I done? I don't know. What have I done? So I was going to, I had a question, like when, which part of your job you feel most like in the zone? I'm just, this is the part I love, but it does sound like you love it all. I love it on set. I love it. Like, and that used to be my scariest thing. I keep looking at the first years. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, set is actually a joy because, yeah, I, I do encourage you to have a ball on set and not be reluctant. I was re- reticent when I was younger, but what about the machine? I mean, you just the talk- machine's amazing. Yeah, no, but it. you talked about how it can be like by episode six, there can be in yeah the politics. Like, how can you? How do you, what's your technique for staying yourself mm-hmm. um, in the, in the, with the machine around you? Um, do you have any kind of offset, you know, like I've heard David Lynch goes to the caravan every lunchtime. meditates. Like, meditates and, yeah. every lunchtime. But do you have any offset thing that prepares you or? I watch a lot of uh, reality TV. To keep TV. you as yourself. Yeah, I watch a lot of reality <laughs> TV. <laughs> Sometimes I usually pick a show that is my show for that thing, and, uh-huh. and often it's not a premium show, although once for Queen America it was The Handmaid's Tale. That was just my happy place for some weird reason. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do find – and often I'm away, so you find your um, – your rituals and it, it's different and you're eating one certain type of food so you find a place and it's like oh I love the noodles here and that's just so I get really monotonous with with what I'm doing I don't go out much I, I friends will be like you're in New York and I'm like I'm not seeing anyone like I can't mm-hmm. I, I have to, I do have to stay in a focus bubble and energy yeah and preserving energy because people I do let people plug into me like I do feel like my job is to energize everybody so yeah, so when there's politics, I'm getting better, but I still do get rattled by people. There are you are going to come across. There's often like one villain on every crew, and it could be the AD, it could be the DP, it could be the showrunner. Like, and and it's always like I'm always like, who is it? Who is it? And yeah, the well, last few strategy. shows, there wasn't anyone. It was like, oh, we're all great. Like, but there is often a villain, and it's and for me, it's like, um, how am I going to interface with the villain? Um, and tell us how, yeah. how do you work Well, it's it? all different. Well, I, I, I have had, when I was younger, I had some really 
negative encounters with DPs because I was a big, a bouncy goofball. Like, um, and I guess, unfortunately, it was only... Well, well, what I did with them in the moment was I just decided to keep bouncing back because everything in them, they kind of wanted to end game me. It felt like this one DP was needling me because he didn't believe I was going to be able to deliver and he kind of wanted to prove himself right, which is was really weird. And I just decided, I cried. I remember crying. I remember having to leave set and go to the toilet to cry because it was so dumbfounding that he would, he was saying the things like, um, why don't you have a think about the edit? Like when I'd be like, I want to do this shot. And he's like, are you, but I remember the edit. And it's like, are you kidding me? That's all I'm thinking about, mate. Like I didn't say that, but I remember crying and crying at night. And, uh, but I just decided to keep bouncing back and being like, okay. Yeah. Like, and, and anyway, like the, the usefulness of that was that it actually is one of the best episodes I've ever directed. And he ended up, and I didn't let him overrule me. He ended up using that episode to submit for cinematography <laughs> awards. Like, um, and so it's only with enough experience to be like, oh, I went through that and I was okay and I was right. And I had the editor writing to me going, holy shit, your shots are weird. Like, like I, I was doing these shots and he was not understanding the shots I was getting. And she was like, these are amazing. What a joy it is to edit these. And she's gone on to be a, a really big editor. So those little notes from the editor as she was seeing my dailies come in. And unfortunately, yeah, it, it's only that... Um, sort of collecting those experiences and by the now I love it when a DP's like who's this idiot because uh, I know I know that I'm going to win them over and that I'm right and so like I love being underestimated but as I get older in my career now I'm not underestimated I'm like oh now they expect me to be good and that's not as fun like I actually found that's not as fun when they're like okay and I'm like no push back like challenge me because we might you might find something better but now they just listen to me and I'm like oh that's not fun either <laughs> Has anybody else got a question already? Yes. Hello, I'm James. I'm a Master of Screenwriting student. Very inspiring talk. Thank you for being so generous with your experiences. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, if you hadn't won Tropfest, mm. what do you think your strategy would have been mm. to pursue a directing career? Oh. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I was shadowing a lot. I had shadowed a lot of directors over here. Um, I had been told it wasn't my turn yet in Australia. I was really demoralized. There was a point where just before we won Tropfest, um, I was ready to throw it all in uh, because I couldn't get a break. And I felt so like I didn't fit in in our industry. And my classmate, Jonathan Alfterhide, I had seen When the Wind Changes at, um, oh, I see you smile. <laughs> oh, it makes me so sad. Like, so I'm so moved by Jonathan because he, um, he gave me these episodes of a web series to direct and I was going to stop directing and I was going to renovate houses. Like that was going to be what I was going to do. And Jono's like, you, you have to direct. And he had just done Van Diemen's Land I don't know if you know who he is or he had just directed that and he had savings from that that he was going to make a web series with and he gave me five of his episodes he was going to direct 10 of them and he was like take five and so that was a lifeline for me but I I, I really I really didn't know what to do in Australia like I had been a runner so Tony Ayres had sort of taken me in and gave me an episode of a tv show to of a documentary series to direct called anatomy 
So I did that, but that didn't fully go anywhere either. Like I was really hitting my head. So um, the short, I always say to people, make short films, don't waste anyone's time, make your short films as good as they can be. Now my short films at VCA weren't very strong. And I remember Nicolette going, you have some script problems with your third year film. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. That was the last thing I wrote. Like I stopped writing after that. I'm like, I'm not a writer. But um, for me, it was just, that was, that was, that just seems like the most clear path. Make short films until you are undeniably good and, and that they get attention. But you can make shit films here and you should, like every mistake, you should, no, <laughs> every mistake she means that at I, school. At school. Every mistake that I made was invaluable. Like I made a short film here uh, in first year where I was so overwhelmed because I didn't come from Melbourne. So like I didn't know what locations to use. So I shot it in my garage and I used my friends and sitting there, just the physical experience of being like, well, that didn't work. And then if you look at Lemonade Stand, the the, um, the locations are impeccable. And Kitty Green let me shoot in her family home. Like and then you just, you, you can only through lived pain of being like, oh, I hate that choice. I hate mm. a slow credits crawl. I remember being at a film festival with this self-important credits and my name is just <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and I remember someone groaned behind me and they're like, oh, and I was just like, yeah. Like, and so then I would just like race, like, you know, make sure that my heads of department got their due, but trying, you know, it was only through making all of those mistakes that, helped me but but the, yeah then I made three killer shots where I was like ruthless in in no we're not ready to shoot like Rick Davies wanted to shoot when the wind changes really quickly and I was like we're not ready all we have is time we have no money mate but we do have time because no one cares about this deadline for this film so let's make sure that we have the best location and the best cast and the best script he yeah and and then we got the script into an amazing place but anyway sorry for that roundabout answer one thing on the subject of shorts I um, remember being at an international film school conference where all of us film school teacher kind of guys talk to each other. And there was a, the woman who was the head of the Danish film school mm -hmm. and she had been a uh, TV producer, you know, still kind of was, and she, I've worked with Lars von Trier and this, that and the other. And she, uh, like a lot of European film schools, don't ha have short films. They ha the students make very long films, like 50 minutes, and you know. So whereas here, you know, as you know, our philosophy is like short, learn your mistakes, quickly get onto another one. These students might only make one or two films, but they're very long, and so they make a lot of the same. I think they make a lot of the same mistakes in this thing that takes a long time and a lot of money and resources to make. But her argument against the short films where she goes, well, yeah, but as a, as a TV drama series producer, I can't tell anything about how a director can uh, develop story or really develop, uh, produce different kinds of performances in a very short film. She said like, you know, like they just lay music over it. Anybody can make a great short film. So that was her point of view. I wonder what you mm. think about that. Well, I disagree. Like. I Reels aren't very useful. I remember just being like, yeah, anyone can make a reel look good. You're just taking all the best shots out of all your best shorts and putting an amazing track over it. So reels aren't really useful, um, which I made a beautiful reel when I got out. Um, but I am looking at director's work and I am when I'm I'm now as an EP, I'm hiring directors myself and I am very satisfied with their short films. If 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 they are shooting things interestingly and there's something hooky, but so there's something like I hired a woman 
based on two of her short films. And I, I really liked her ambition. Like she did these amazing, and you know, I could see the budget limitation, but she was ambitious. She, she did this one that tracked through and she had, she was directing people sort of crossing the screen. And, and, and I was like, oh, great. And I was, and I skipped through that short, by the way. I was like on fire, I was like, didn't have time, but, but I hired her and she killed it. And she also had these people hovering in the air. And I was like, that's an imaginative person that, and again though, see, we have the machine, like, and I've set this machine up so I trust my people that I can put a newer director in and let her flourish, and she did. So that's my, yeah, I disagree. But, but you, have to, you have to have a kernel of something special in those shots that, that my kernel never came in any of my film school ones. But maybe it is true what you say about in a series, especially if you go into episode four, yeah. that the actors are already yes. connected to character. Yeah. So that that thing that the Danish film school head is saying about performance and stuff is already kind of taking care of itself. Exactly. And it might also be that in Denmark, like (laughs) they don't have as many, they make such amazing content there, but there's probably not as much. Whereas in America, we're so strong over there that they can also support breaking new directors in almost every series. Like you can break some people in. And I got my start and like, I did a kids TV show and I was terrible, but they loved me. Like the machine was moving and it was for Amazon just before people knew what Amazon were even doing. Like Transparent hadn't come out yet. They were shooting around the corner from us. We were doing this kids show because Lemonade Stand happened to look like the show. Like, so I'd made Lemonade Stand and my agent also repped the producing director and got my foot in the door. And luckily Amazon were looking to break a couple of new female directors so that's what I got. And so people write to me a lot and ask how they can break in. And, I'm, and I wasn't super ambitious at the start. I would have taken anything. But this show happened to be very cinematic. But, yeah, so I really recommend starting small as well like get, and getting some runs on the board. I remember the AD saying to me for, for, for Gordon McGibbons, I was like, yeah, we're going to shoot all this stuff here and then we're going to go here and then we're going to go here. And, then, and she was like, whoa, like you're changing axes and I'm like what's an axe like what 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 are you talking about and like so I learned I was lucky to learn on the fly mm-hmm. um but I was very kind and empowering and I was great with the kids so that's why they kept inviting me back because I was shooting these imaginative things and pushing it even though technically I was still my brain my neural pathways hadn't formed properly with certain technical aspects of filmmaking okay any other questions from the floor yes um, Nicholas, isn't it? Yes, it is. Oh, Lovely so to see you. Again. He's an old student of mine. Oh. <laughs> Alethea taught me at Swinburne University ten years ago, um, and I won't ask any questions regarding that time period. Um, <laughs> I was wondering. Thank you for the kind laugh. Um, <laughs> a terrible joke. Um, I was actually wondering about because um, in our Masters of Screenwriting course, we talk a lot about uh, finding your voice as a writer but also just more generally as a creative person in the arts industry and I was wondering um, as you sort of moved into the US industry how you found that affecting your voice as a director Um, you spoke a lot about tone coming into sort of projects that were already sort of mostly formed in pre-production and then finding avenues where you could feel like yes this is honestly a part of me that I'm bringing to this while still kind of 
navigating the politics of it all? Great question. Uh, I have been fortunate more recently to be able to choose shows that that I know that my instinct is going to align and enhance the show. So there's enough work where I've gone, no, I'm going to go with this one. It's a bit weird and elevated and, and I know exactly what to do with that. And so then my natural impulse aligns with the showrunners and I love surprising them. They're still, I always really love bringing a little bit extra for them and they, they're always delighted by it. So I did a movie called Fun Mum Dinner, which was a joy and it was a great um, opportunity for me, but that was not my voice. Like, and so um, that was really hard for me to do because it was so broad and straight. And like I said, I had a really great time. They were very great people. But in fact, that doing that, and again, I always talk about the physical experience of like, oh, I will never pick a bad location again or whatever. Like the physical experience of sitting there going, this is not me. This is not my voice. You'll see if you look at my credits, I just do a very sharp turn left and get real weird. Like, cause, because Fun Mum Dinner was so special, but not me. I, I was like, I can never sit. I can't do that again. Um, so I got, I only chose really unusual, imaginative, elevated things for, for that reason, for the voice. And then with Mrs. Davis, if you get a chance to see it, there were little things that because I've become a little more fluent in television directing, I really like to surprise the showrunners sometimes with a little thing like that they don't know I'm going to do. So I get the scene exactly as they want, but there was one moment where, you know, they're in that sofa. They've been Mm -hmm. smuggled into a sofa, a Trojan couch. Mm -hmm. So they're sneaking into a building by passing out in a sofa. (coughs) And and then after hours, they climb out of the sofa and heist the place. So they're in the sofa and the drugs are hitting. And in the script, she passes out and has a memory of her father's funeral. And I was... First, she goes through a floral... That, now that was what I added like and I didn't and I kind of had the idea a few days before shooting that scene where I was like oh I think Damon and Tara might really enjoy this so I'll shoot it straight but I have time and a plan that it's kind of fun to give them little presents for the edit and so I added that she passes out because she goes to a funeral I was like wouldn't it be a great transition if in the in the big floral wreath what if those flowers came into the box as she's passing out? So she, she, I'm really tight on her eye and I push out as she gets really high in the, in the Trojan couch and now she's surrounded by a wreath of moving flowers and they're all like undulating and she looks at the flowers and then the camera pushes in on one of them and then pulls out from the wreath. In the, so I just used it as a transition and that was just a fun little... I like doing those little presents for the showrunner and they left it in. They were like, oh... Thank you. <laughs> so how the hell do you find the time, you know, like the speed, though, of so much material to shoot? Mm. How do you find the time to have that extra time that would be required to do that sort of thing? Yeah, I call it the squeeze. Like, I really like editing stuff. I like angles. I, I do admire. I've been noticing other directors that don't cover things as much, and they let things sit in a beautiful mid-shot, like a group shot of three – Like. And I really admire that. But for me, I love going, like I like getting shots of things, right? So I am ambitious. And in order to do that, I've got to move really fast. And I'm really, I've gotten really good at being, at knowing. And I let the actors in on it. Like they know how fast I'm going to move and they are in on the plan, which is a big part of it. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I will just leave the camera rolling and, 
and know that I'm gonna I'm on this size on someone, I'll just be like, and I'll say to them before we go in, like, hey Betty, are you okay if I leave the camera rolling this time and just reset a few times? And she's like, thank you, it's a six page scene. I would love to go back over that section and just hit that line five times in a row. And if they're like, so I move really quick like that and I get a lot of footage in a really quick amount of time because I'm like, reset, stay rolling, take it from, and I've got my, iP I'm on my iPad and I'm like, take it from this line. And they just, they're all complicit in the choice together. But that's how I can move so fast because I have an agenda to get my flower shot at the end of the day. And it, I only put those special things usually at the end of the day because if we don't make it. What do they call <coughs> continuity person in the States? Script supervisor. Do you try and take the same one from job to job then? Because that sounds like they would be very handy. I for did. I did. Thing. In any job, like I had this amazing script supervisor from Gordon McGibbons and she taught me a lot. Like she, she I was this, like on Gordon McGibbons, that first show I was, the like kid, I said, I was show. like, what's happening? Yeah, the kids show. She taught me a lot about axes and she always said clean entrances and exits. Like if in doubt, like they're like, let's go again. She was like, just go from the top get them entering again, get them exiting. Like sometimes cause like I'd get enthusiastic and call cut before the person walked out of the room. And now you know you're gonna, in the edit, you probably are gonna cut it before they leave the room. But she's like, just get it. Like, cause you never know. And so she, mm. I tried to bring her on a lot of stuff. Like she's credited by my side on a lot of things, but then sometimes there's already a script supervisor and sometimes they're rubbish and sometimes they're amazing. So you have to get good at it yourself too. It, yeah, you, you encounter different levels of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Another question? Uh, yes. Sorry. Samara. <laughs> Does it need to go back on? Oh. I'm gonna... Oh, it's on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said that, like, at the early stages when you were making your short films, you worked a lot with screenwriters. Mm -hmm. How did you... Were there connections you already had or did you reach out to a lot of people? Yeah. And also, what's your process of working with actors and rehearsals and stuff? Oh, I love it all. Um, <laughs> well, for a start, it was just a really weird twist of fate that I made these three short mm -hmm. films that were written by... It, it's like a weird... So I had directed Richard Davies in my grad film, when um, The Girl in the Moon. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was in it. He, he was a guy that I found on Showcast. Is that, that's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Found Rick on Showcast, put him in my film. He had such a lovely time on set with me that he said, I have an idea for a short film called When the Wind Changes. Would you like to direct it? Because I felt really valued by you. So I directed that. And then the next film that came along was actually Dave's Dead. And Luke Ryan is an actor who had savings and had written something just like Rick had. Now Luke went to Jonathan Alfterhide with that short film and said, would you direct this short film called Dave's Dead with Patrick Brammel in it. I don't know if you guys know who Patty Brammel is. So this was with Patty. I'm like, who's Patty Brammel? Um, and Jono said, get Alethea to direct it because she does comedy. And so he gave me Dave's Dead. Bloody Jono. Um, uh, and then weirdly, I was with Tim. Yeah, so I don't know, I did that. Like, And then again, Tim Potter, he wrote Lemonade Stand. He starred in it and it was his savings. Who he was a VCA actor. He was a VCA actor. I'd met him through Kitty. He was in Kitty's film. And Tim and I actually were both cut. I was also an actor before I started directing. So Tim and I were actually in something together called Lowdown. And we had the funnest time in between setups because we were really small roles and it was a bit humiliating for us. Like, 
and we were giggling and he had such a lovely time and he'd known that I had done these other shorts and he said, would you direct a Tropfest film? And I said, <laughs> I don't do Tropfest. And, and then I read the script and I was like, oh, I do do Tropfest. Okay, this is going to be great. And I had a ball. So that's how that happened. It was just by chance. Um, but I used to be an actor. So I am very... I used to get panic attacks at VCA. I remember Kath Chambers came in to teach us cinematography. Does she still teach here? And I had, I had to leave the class because I couldn't understand the ISOs and the frame rates and the, I don't I can't even explain what I couldn't understand. Like I, I didn't do the math very well. So I had to leave the class because I was crying and she noticed and she brought me back in and made me change a mag and it was a lot. Um, but the acting I always knew because I was an actor and I have had the experience of being abandoned by a director on set, you know, when directors are a little hands off and yelling out from the monitor. Um, but that was one thing I was always good at, getting out and being with the cast and making, even now, like directors are still like tentative because they're technical and they've got a lot to do. But I will always, Kat Dennings really enjoyed working with me on a show called Dollface. She was like so happy to, to get direction because I got all up in her business. I'm like, okay, Kat, like, let's go. And like, she was like, woo, like she was loving it. And she was like, this feels great. So she made sure I came back on season two because because I wasn't scared of the actors. And the, the technical always sorts it, itself out. It, it's, I think it's the performance that will make or break you. We haven't talked much about one thing about television is rehearsal time. Oh, yeah. So do you get it? How do you get it? I, what do you do when you don't get it? Yeah, it's usually up to the director if there's rehearsal, but I do hold space for rehearsals on everything in the cast. I mean, you do. You do have to rehearse it. It's very rare when you won't get a rehearsal. Um, I work in an elevated space, a heightened kind of... So there's usually rehearsals. Now, interestingly, because I love moving the camera, I'm usually requesting pieces of equipment that need to be budgeted for. So maybe it's like a crane shot that moves through a window and still, or it starts on someone's eye and then pulls back through the window and up and away. Like, so you've got to find a time to get to your actor either the day before or even that morning and find a way to be like, I've already locked in that blocking. Like what if they have an impulse that mm. they don't want to be still? So on those things I'm, I'm intuiting at what point should I talk to the actor I'll try grab them the day before and be like, hey, I've got this idea. And they don't even know. I've probably already requested the equipment, but I'm making them part of the choice. <laughs> I'll go, I have this idea. Are you okay with it? Because I've got to order the equipment. It's already on the way. But um, <laughs> when you make them part of the choice, I usually start with a dialogue. by like They usually just want to say the lines with each other standing quietly. And I would always forget to do that. I'd be like, but I usually say, you want to run the lines just quickly together? And they do. And then I always say, hey, could I offer you how I see the shape of the scene? I ask it, and, and of course they're usually going to say, yeah. <laughs> so I say, in my, as for my plan, I was thinking you would start sitting, um, and, and then sometimes we'll do it as I'm talking them through it, um, or sometimes I'll just say the shape of it and say, and on this line, I need you to go to the window because I've got this crane shot waiting for you. And they're usually kind of amazing. But because I have prepped the scene so much, there's always... A lovely moment when an actor says, oh, I, I don't want to go to the window. Mm. Let me tell you why. And because I've prepped it so much, and I do love prep, uh, and I have broken open the scene in many ways, I am able to pivot really quickly and go, okay, yeah. Um, well, just stay here for now. Show me what you want. And I'm looking at the DP and we're having a psychic mm. conversation because everything, <laughs> and he's like, or she's like, okay. 
<laughs> like we're going to, as soon as the actors leave and finish their makeup, we're going to make some adjustments to accommodate for that. And usually it's a better idea. The actors pitch something beautiful and, and we go with it. So it's, it's jazz, right? I always say, let's play jazz. And I sound like a daggy old dad on set or whatever, but it's funny. They all giggle and, but it's, it is jazz. It's, it's, it's improvising together, but they do love when a director is coming. I have found that when a director comes with ideas already and, and holds them in a space where they feel like they can have a dialogue with me, but also they feel held, that, that's where I get the best results. Any other questions? I'll ask a quick one then, slip one in. So it sounds like you've had a lot of aha moments, you know, like you, yeah. um, <laughs> you've already, you know, mentioned about 12. Can you think of a, another moment where you just feel like you remember, oh my God, this is actually where I got it. This is where I got oh. what I've got to do or what I've got to change, how I've got to change or what's available mm. that I've never thought of before. The flying the spaceship was an interesting, I can't think of the exact moment when I realized, oh, they really want me to take control of the, of the, of the wheel. And, and, and they want you to, the crew is, is hoping. They're all so scared that you're going to be a huge train wreck. Cause they're like, this weird person gets to come in and tell us what to do. And we've been here for months. And they can't, like a director can derail a whole show mm. with their episode, like, and they're just like, oh. So that's when I was like, oh, they really, and there's a tall poppy aspect that comes with us being Australians and putting ourselves out there and being like, I'm great. Like, I can do this, follow me. Like, so I had to overcome, like, I remember just being like, what do I know? Like, even in general meetings, mm -hmm. being like, I tall poppied myself in generals and they were like, oh. <laughs> Like, so yeah, the, I don't remember the exact moment mm -hmm. where I was like, mm -hmm. oh, being deft with the machinery is actually what they want. And you can be, and they want, they're waiting for you to be, to fly it in your own way. And it's, and, and it, and it, it can be intimidating, like turning around a huge ship, like moving a whole film crew, like it can feel, but, but when I realized, mm -hmm. no, I can be very agile and it's a big machine with, with hundreds of people, but agility is there for the taking and but it comes with practice. I couldn't do it early on, but you'll get there. I was a mess. I was really bad. Mm -hmm. And I got there. Mm -hmm. There's a very entertaining Australian character in Mrs. Davis. Ah. Is he there because of you? Maybe. I don't think so. Damon Lindelof loves the Australian accent. If you've seen The Leftovers, I think it goes to Australia and there's a guy in there with a bad Australian accent. Um, <laughs> So Damon, and even like when he hired me, he was like, I love Australians. <laughs> like, it's like, your senses of humor is so dark. Um, but I was there in the audition for that Australian, for that character. That character was not Australian. Mm -hmm. He's American. Yeah, you can tell it's not the right accent. I know, right? <laughs> and so Damon, we're texting because all the auditions are over Zoom now. So we're all on a group Zoom. We've all turned our cameras off. And, we're, and Damon's like, I wish he had an accent. Well, maybe Tara was like, I wish he had an accent. And Damon was like, Australian. And this guy, Chris, who is American, was like, what kind of accent do you... And he improvised Australian, which is incredibly hard. Um, but the backstory is that that character is not Australian, even in reality. Like, he's put... Like, there is no... Australianness in the story. Exactly. But he actually, if, if you dug deeper, he, he was born... That character is American 
even though he has an, he's got a fake Australian accent. So he's allowed to have a bad accent. But you, if you watch it, you'll notice that his accent is better on my episodes. Because I was, I was phonetically correcting him going, no. Like, and he'd like, no. Like he, he, but but he was allowed to have a bad accent because because I also felt like he was a bit of a metaphor for Australian filmmakers, <laughs> you know, like he's he's gung ho, yeah. anything can be done, you know, I like bravado. Yeah, he's a joy. Yeah. Um, any other questions ready? Uh, I'll go to a different one, Helen, just for a different person. Um, I'm interested in the uh, gender. Uh, and diversity makeup of crews there. It's been a huge issue for a long time in Australia. So when Nicolette, I've been I, at film school, I discovered I can't write, but I can direct. Um, when film school was a film school, like at Swinburne and uh, Nicolette, have, I, I've, and I've come through a system which was, I was the first female director that most crews that I ever worked with ever had yeah. worked with. And I'm just wondering what this, what it looks like now in the States in particular, um, and you know, that whole cowboy thing was, it was like working on a building site really, um, was the name of the game in the 70s, 80s, 90s and yeah. even 2000s. So just some idea of what that scenario looks like for, uh, for people uh, who were not part of the mainstream uh, history of filmmaking. Amazing. I noticed it. So I started working in America in 2014. I got the job, the Amazon kids TV show, Gordon McGibbon's Life on Normal Street. And the kids were enamored of me, the child actors, because I was the first female director. They And they'd all had multiple credits before that. And one of the girls would follow me around. And in fact, she shadowed me on a later episode because she was just like, you're amazing. Like, and she just did, they didn't know. And I, I was... There are only, actually that show there were three of us, three female directors, but um, I did feel it, I did feel like a, a solo voice for those first few years and then very quickly, it was actually very special to be part of it during that time, very quickly there were, I wasn't the only, like I was a member of Jungle Boys, you know the production company Jungle? They used to be called Jungle Boys and I was a girl, like I was like, what am I, what's happening? Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there, I, I felt the change and it is beautiful now. I think we need to go further with, um, the, so gender is now coming across. We're seeing even more trans directors and queer directors, which is really excellent. Um, and the stories and the stories. Yeah. It's a joy. It, it is beautiful seeing female grips, uh, which I just follow. I sort of hover around there and I'm like, hi. And uh, it, it's really inappropriate and weird because I'm so excited. Like that, there's this this woman walking through holding an amazing piece of equipment, and I just want to hang out with her. But like I learned, that's, you can't do that. Like <laughs> let her do her job. But um, but yeah, no, it's really it's wonderful. There's still a ways to go, but it is. I have actually noticed a really wonderful shift. It's terrific. Yeah, I had one question about scheduling your life. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that. You know, they luckily delayed uh, Mrs. Davis a bit because she was still on Pink Ladies. And then you said, well, the second season of Pink Ladies was written. Yes. So I'm presuming you might have had something great penciled in your um, schedule for that. And yeah. then that gets scrapped. Hmm. How, like... You just go where, the, <laughs> you go where the green light is. Like, and because, and, and you upset people. I, I, I have learnt... 
but I let my I have agents and managers that take care of that, and I try my best to clean up after it. But everybody thinks they're going. Every, every TV show and movie really believes that it's happening, and I just have had to be it. And it feels ruthless, but why? I have turned like I had a movie that I was attached to that told me they were going, and and so I turned down a TV gig, and it didn't go. And then I didn't have my job, so I. I've just let my managers help deal with it. And they know they're good at it. So I just go where the green light is. Mm-hmm. It's pretty ruthless, but it's not ruthless. It's just work. Yeah, it's practical. I it mean, works itself out. Yeah. I mean, you're lucky. Uh, I was wondering when you said you took the fun mum dinner job, Yeah. whether that was also, you know, you knew it wasn't really your, your thing, but it was part of your strategy yes. there to, you know, be more seen, have a project, um, went to Sundance, people would know you so that that thing to of weighing up taking the job that you're not really enthusiastic about but it's a piece of strategy a stepping stone yeah yeah and that's when it comes to surrounding yourself with the right representation like agents and managers and um it was so, my husband and I were just talking about whether that was a good thing or not like and I did get some good opportunities out of fun mum dinner um yeah uh i have a really good team now i have different representation now and i trust them implicitly like they are we all talk about it we we there's six of them and we really dig in like when i signed with them they're like what do you want to do and i was like gosh i wish i'd have done guardians of the galaxy one and they were like well let's build everything towards you doing Mm. that sort of whatever that looks like in five years it won't be guardian it won't be a marvel movie because they're getting weird but It'll be something like I'd love to do an Indiana Jones or a Star Wars or um, so everything is to is that and it's the conversations that we have with my attorney with the agents and managers to does it move me closer to that or not like so I did a I did a pilot at the start of the year that is a, a really straight crime procedural for network television which is really out of my wheelhouse and I this is the French high potential yeah. yeah I did I did that and and I remember when we were going through the scripts that had come in to see what I would throw my hat in the ring for. Like, I don't get offered things yet. When the scripts come in for me, they're open director's assignments and it's more, do you want to throw your hat in the ring for it and then put a presentation together? So that came in and I was dismissive of it. I was like, no, I don't think I could do a straight crime procedural. Um, I want to do the weird stuff. I want to do musicals and sci-fi. And my one of my managers said, not so fast. The writer of that, his name's Drew Goddard and he wrote cab wrote and directed cabin in the woods and the martian and some of the best episodes of buffy and he does dc stuff and so they were like you know maybe you could have a nice collaboration with drew and something else will happen in the future and i don't know what will happen in the future but i made a friend for life in drew and he's a lovely champion for me so that's why i did that so that the crime procedural itself wasn't that but it, what will come of that yeah, that will be interesting. so that team are more expert in that side of things and yeah they're playing yeah. three what is it 3d chess <laughs> they're, yeah that's great yeah and i don't know i'm just i don't know if i like the script but they're like what yeah so you've already answered my question about your dream jobs oh yeah um we probably better wind up though so has anybody you had another question did anybody else have another question nick yeah it's nick again hi everyone um you spoke earlier about um the streaming services and the studios um, and you know obviously the industry is in the midst of one strike has already had 
think uh, two previous now as well. Um, I'm wondering in your point of view where you see the industry heading um, given that the impression I got from, from what you said earlier was that the streaming service bubble is kind of about to burst yeah. and that was such a seismic shift in the industry when they all came about. Yeah. So do you have any inkling of where things might go going forward? My instinct and I've spoken to execs and producers, I've asked them this and agents, the consensus is that we will see a contraction, like uh, uh, it will shrink. We're going to see some streamers buy other streamers. So Hulu, which I don't even know if you have, you don't have Hulu here. Well, that's a really competitive platform in America. Like it's right up there. I pick between Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus a lot. Like Hulu will probably get absorbed by Disney Plus. Disney Plus will be absorbing a few a few things. Um, I don't. We don't even know where. HBO, well, it's Max now, where that will go, what will happen there. So we'll, we'll, we'll lose some platforms. Films, there won't be as many TV shows being made. There won't be as many films being made. Um, and the budgets will go down a little bit. But I think that's okay. I think we're going to see more quality. Like, I think the good stuff will still get made. We've just, there was just too much. There was so much flying around, which was actually used. I was so glad I was there for it because I got so much work. Um, and what about the franchise models? Like, are we just going to keep getting DC? I think we will, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd like to do a DC movie one day. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, um, I don't know what's happening to Marvel, though. They're sort of falling away, aren't they? Mm, yeah, I mean, but there still is all Marvel that. movies are my favourite. We watched every Marvel movie in chronological order during the... In narrative chronological order during the pandemic, I just feel like there's still all those characters. You know, as property, there's still all yeah. those characters that can have all those other stuff. And you know, one of my favorite things from last year was Andor, um, which was a Star Wars, um, which Ariel Kleiman's doing season two of that um, from VCA, and uh, and that is taking someone from a property for like. Mm from a property from a property like that's so abstracted those characters are re- removed from the star wars world but yeah they're still going to wring it dry which is a shareholder kind of thing like how do you keep making a profit from what we own which is surely one of the writers issues you know they want to start writing original. well that's <laughs> another thing though we we're actually this happened during the last strike i think around 2007 the a big writer's strike we we did see we will see a bunch. A lot of writers have been doing spec scripts on their own um, during the strike. We've had five months of striking, and that a spec is just like them being like writing from their heart, writing their dream project mm. because no one's paying them with an agenda. They're not getting notes. That it's it's not a job. So after two thousand and seven, apparently some and I, I wish I knew the names of the films, but some very special original films came out for the next four years that came out of that strike. So the hope is that mm. all of these writers, even though they had to be pens down and not working for studios, they were working for themselves and now they're gonna sell those spec scripts. There's gonna be a glut in a great way. Like there's gonna be an embarrassment of riches of great scripts. So let's see what comes out in the next few years mm. from that. That'll be really special. That sounds like a good place to stop. I think so. Let's be optimistic about it. Yeah. So thank you so much, Alethea, for oh, dropping by. Good luck, everybody. Good luck to all of you. Is there something you should have told yourself at graduation? Oh. No, but I did want to say I, I, I sidestepped one thing. 
Um, general meetings, you were like, what did you do? Like, because you didn't have anything to sell. Mm. I wanted to say like the trick that I always tell people, executives go into general meetings and they do hundreds every year. And they're always going to say to you, how did you become a director? What's your favorite movie? Like it, and they switch off and you can see them sometimes being like, like sometimes they're bare, like they, it's because they've got other, they've got other stuff to do. So I realized really quickly, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about weird shit. Like, let's talk about like get witches and covens. Back. Yeah. Let, let, let me ask you something like, so, so don't get so blitzed in your first few generals by, by feeling that you have to impress, make a human connection and listen to them and let the conversation go. Like if, if they said, yeah, when I was a kid, we went camping and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, where'd you go camping? Who was it? Was there anything weird you did when you did camping? And they'll say, yeah, one time I peed in a puddle and like, and I'm like, you're a weirdo. And like, it, then it becomes a really fun. And then it's actually not a waste of your time either. Cause you're meeting a person and not just pushing your energy onto someone. A lovely exchange is much more memorable. And then jobs do come of that. But yeah, make you, it a human you interaction. You become much more memorable. Yeah, right? Everything. Yeah. It's just worthwhile. Like an hour of your time may as well have a meaningful exchange. So that, that's, that's my hot tip that I wanted to share. So I have got an, another important question comes out of that then. So mm. how do you put that element mm. into the pitch decks and the lookbooks? Oh, okay. Here's another trick that I do. Um, when I'm reading a script and I know that I'm going to put a deck to get a presentation together, I'm, I start circling the script for details and I'll forget those little, and it might be paper clips, right? Maybe some, maybe twice it's mentioned that this character plays with a paper clip as they're talking. So I'll circle that. And then I start, I, I, I do my, my whole presentation, but then like in the corner of every few pages, I'll put a weird, I'll start Googling paperclip art or something and I will put them in. And I have had a showrunner move to tears because she was like, <gasps> like you've got knitting like all around the borders. And she's like, because the character knits and she's like, she was like, I've never seen my work so fully seen by a director. So it, it, it's about little tiny details that, you know, like, so maybe someone, I can't remember some other weird little things like buttons or they say, or even like I'll get a font and I'll write a quote that they've said, um, so I, I make very, very specific presentations that the, the showrunners or the writers and producers just pour over. Like they look at it, they keep revisiting it. So that's a trick. Yeah. So showing that you're paying close attention, close attention. and it's creative attention. Yeah. Specificity is really love. It's really a thoughtfulness. Like, and it put it in the tiny corner of something or just a little thing that, that they feel special for noticing and they, they feel like it's a, a secret little thing that you've done just for them. I do that all the time. Everything is what I do for every deck. Cool. Thank you, Alethea, again. Okay. I wasn't lying, was I? That was a fantastic chat. Thanks so much to Alethea and thanks so much to Nicolette. I'm sure there's an enormous amount there for you to be pondering as summer does its thing to us. Take care and we will see you in the new year with more Magic Hour Chats.